You're listening to Dare to Be, a podcast that will host creators and curators of literature, nonfiction, poetry, art, music, dance, photography, and more in a discussion about what drives their passions, fuels their inspiration, and how their daring ideas and projects come to be. And I'm your host, Crystal Davis. This is our first, our debut episode, and I'm very excited about the guest we have today. Will Haygood. Will Haygood is currently a visiting professor in the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film at Miami University in his home state of Ohio. For nearly three decades, he was a national and foreign correspondent at the Boston Globe and the Washington Post. You probably know him best for his work on the 2013 award-winning motion picture, The Butler, a film inspired by his 2008 piece for the Washington Post. Will's latest book is titled Showdown, Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court nomination that changed America. Will, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So tell us about Showdown. What inspired you to write this book and what did you enjoy most about writing it? Well, Thurgood Marshall was always a seminal figure uh, in history. I always wanted a way to go at his life. It's such a big, epic life. He was this great civil rights attorney for the NAACP in the 1940s, 1950s. He dreamed of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which is a separate arm of the NAACP, and that fund was to simply corral lawyers all over the country uh, to file state and federal lawsuits for housing, jobs, equal equal salary for school teachers, uh, and he became a legend, and he rose through the ranks. Uh, he was on the cover of Time magazine, and in 19... 19- 61, President Kennedy took him off of the civil rights road and uh, appointed him a federal appeals court judge. He was there, and then he became the Solicitor General after the death of Kennedy, and and it was President Johnson who nominated him uh, as the first African-American to the Supreme Court in 1967. And as I was looking at Marshall's life, I I was very curious as to why his hearings lasted five days across 13 days. So there was a lot of stop, go, stop, and go. And every other Supreme Court nominee's hearings up to that point had lasted five hours or less. So I wanted to know the story behind those hearings, and that's why I spent five years on the book writing about those five days uh, in and out of the hearing room, what happened. I told the story of this nation behind the curtain of those five days. Now, while I was reading the book, I found it very interesting that Marshall's appointment, rather his nomination to the court, came about not by the passing or the retirement of another justice, as we would typically see today, but by President Johnson's strong desire to have this historic move to place the first African-American on the court. There was a lot of political maneuvering, a lot of backroom dealing and a bit of nepotism, actions that I don't think you, I, or any other American voter would probably see in today's political climate. How surprised were you by that? It was pretty it was pretty shocking to me. Yes, I was very surprised. Lyndon Johnson had been master of the Senate, so he knew he knew senators, he knew how the country worked, and he spent a lot of time in his youth in Texas with Tom Clark and uh, who was currently on the Supreme Court in nineteen sixty seven. So he knew Tom Clark very well. Tom Clark had a son, Ramsey Clark, who Lyndon Johnson um in looking around to create 
a vacancy for Thurgood Marshall. Lyndon Johnson's mind worked this way. He said, well, if I were to tell Tom Clark that I want to, that I want to appoint his son as my solicitor general, but I have a problem in doing that because Tom Clark is on the high court and many people would see that as a raw conflict of interest. How can I make that happen? Tom Clark, having only one son, would think of something that he could do to make that happen. And so when Lyndon Johnson asked Tom Clark what he could do to make it feel very comfortable for the White House to appoint Ramsey Clark. Tom Clark said, well, my God, uh, you know, that's a great opportunity for my son. I've already had a great career, uh, so let me think about it. And he thought about it for a night, and then he suddenly announced to his family that he was going to step down. And uh, that was a surprise. He hadn't been sick. He hadn't told anybody that he was thinking about stepping down. But when he did, that created the needed vacancy for Lyndon Johnson to appoint point, Thurgood Marshall. It was a masterful move, very cagey, very smart, very shrewd. So how do you see a situation like that, which almost seems <laughs> to me a little Shakespearean, in the framework of today's current Supreme Court vacancy? And I know your book came out back in September, and no one could have foreseen what happened to the passing of Antony Scalia. How do you see what happened during Lyndon Johnson's time in, in comparison to what's happening right now with President Obama and the current vacancy on the court? Uh, well, well, my book is called Showdown, and uh, there is a looming showdown now with this and with this new crisis. I think that Thurgood Marshall was the right man in the right time and the right place, and I think in Lyndon Johnson's mind, he thought that by integrating the U.S. Supreme Court with a very gifted man, with a man who uh, had graduated number one in his law school class at uh, Howard University. I think that he thought that Thurgood Marshall's nomination was the final nail in the coffin of white supremacy. I think he thought the first nail was the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The second nail was the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Third and final nail was the nomination of Thurgood Marshall. I don't think Lyndon Johnson thought it was going to be a uh, as hard of a uh, fight as it turned out to be, and yet he was ready for a fight. He was ready for a fight, and because he came from a tough state, he knew senators, he knew how to, you know, for lack of a better word, he would threaten people. <laughs> um, he would say, like, he would call one of the senators, senators up who was wavering on voting for Thurgood Marshall, and he would say, look, <laughs> um, I understand that there is going to be a bridge built in your hometown, and my goodness, they might name that bridge after you. Well, as you know, more federal funds are going to be needed to make sure that that bridge happens, make sure that your wife and your family for uh, for years to come are quite happy about that bridge. But I'm going to tell you something, Tom. I got a, or Joe, or whoever he was talking to, or Fred, I've got a good man I want to put on the Supreme Court, and I don't want you letting me down. 
down because this bridge thing might fall apart right before your eyes. And so he was very cagey like that. Uh, current situation, it's hard to say how things are going to, uh, are going to happen, but I will say this, uh, the Southern Democrats and the Republicans uh, would not have dared threaten the White House in 1967 by saying, we won't even hold hearings. They just would not have done that. They, in their own narrow minds, had too much respect for the White House. So do you think that there's anything that the White House of today could learn from LBJ's White House back then yes. in terms of their strategy and their approach? How to cajole, how to cajole, how to twist arms, uh, and they must not back down. Lyndon Johnson was uh, hell-bent on making sure that Thurgood Marshall made it onto the high court. Uh, I think, I guess that the White House is right now doing what it needs to do. They're staying the course. Uh, but these hearings uh, must happen at least. Uh, we must get an opportunity to uh, see who this nominee is, um, uh, how he feels about the law, how he feels about the Constitution. Uh, yeah, about rights, uh, women's rights and children's rights and civil rights, uh, law and order. You know, it's a very important time. He could be a swing vote on the high court for years to come. Uh, but um, we need these hearings. We need these hearings to happen. And and if it's, if it's a showdown, then so be it. Uh, <laughs> It'll just man, give you more material for another book. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so the final vote for Marshall in the Senate back in 1967 was 69 to 31. Why did the Republican strategy fail? When I was reading the book, even though I knew what the outcome was, <laughs> it kind of had me jittery. I was just like, it seems that the heavy hitters on the Senate Judiciary Committee during that time, Strom Thurmond, James Eastland of Mississippi, and Senator McClellan of Arkansas, they seemed like they had a pretty good strategy in terms of attacking Marshall on his interpretation of the law, on his past dealings in terms of civil rights cases. But ultimately, their strategy failed. They lost 69 to 31. Why do you think in terms of the research that you did over the course of the five years for the book, why did it fail? Well, it was very close because if the if the Southern Democrats had have mustered, if the White House had have gotten less than 62 votes, it would have enabled the Senate to launch a nasty filibuster, and that would have stopped Thurgood Marshall and the White House in their tracks. So really, Marshall only got onto the court by a handful of votes, by like seven votes. And so it was very tight. And so the Southerners made their point now, these hearings weren't on TV, and so a lot of the nasty things they did in their efforts to tear down Thurgood Marshall were not heard by everybody. Uh, there were just snippets now and then, but the nation was at a very, very hot spot. There were riots going on, folks were nervous, and there was a feeling maybe on the streets that if Marshall didn't make it, that that would have sent a very bad signal to those who believed in justice and freedom. Marshall had been an excellent lawyer. He had argued maybe 32 cases as a lawyer before the Supreme Court, and he won Mm-hmm. Now, were there fear of riots if Marshall's confirmation didn't go through? Were there fears that there might be riots during oh, that yes, time? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, there was a riot in Michigan 
in Detroit, Michigan that lasted several days. That was a very awful. Scores died. Uh, and, and this happened on the fifth day of the hearings. And so I think that there was a fear that there would be more riots, not necessarily that those riots would be linked to Marshall uh, himself, but it would just be an extension of people feeling a lack of justice and a lack of freedom. And face it, Marshall was the face of the NAACP, so it was as if the NAACP was on trial during, uh, during the five days of those hearings. Yeah, it surprised me so much in the book how revered and how much of a, a bit of a celebrity Marshall was. Every time he would go to a new town for a case, how many of the local black residents were would fawn over him and thank him and send him letters and just congratulate him time and time again for every victory that he had whenever he visited their town. Yes, he was this nation's go-to lawyer uh, for three decades. I mean, he really was. You know, he was a genius at what he did and uh, mothers who had sons who has been arrested on trumped up charges in Mississippi or Georgia or Florida they would say to themselves if I can just get a letter to Mr. Thurgood Marshall maybe I could save my baby I mean that was oh. the attitude through much of the South he was a bit of a superhero he would say he was yes he was now President Johnson died in 1973 six years after Marshall started his term in the high court and in your book, you mentioned that President Johnson actually wanted to write a book of his own about Marshall's confirmation hearings, but unfortunately he died before he could do so. Do you think that your book tells the story the way that President Johnson would have wanted it to be told? Well, uh, yes, there was a great phone call from Lyndon Johnson. He had been out of the White House, as you mentioned, and he was back on his Texas ranch. Thurgood Marshall was on the Supreme Court, and one night, Thurgood Marshall got a call from Lyndon Johnson, and he said, Thurgood, you caused me a lot of hell. <laughs> to going to that court, it was just, it, it was hell. It was just awful. And he sort of laughed about it and he said, but nobody knows what happened. And by God, I'm going to write a book about it. I'm going to write a book about the hell you caused me. And both of them started laughing. Thurgood Marshall said, well, Mr. President, I'll always be grateful for what you did and if there's anything I can do to help you with this book I certainly will and of course then he died and I was telling my 23 year old niece about that story and she said well Uncle Will you wrote the book that the president never got a chance to write and and I very humbly said to her well thank you for saying that I sort of guess I did and maybe I'll use your line on my book tour and so I'm very proud if this is the book that that he never got a chance to to write because in the life of Thurgood Marshall it seemed to be the big unwritten story of his life these hearings that's great that's so great to hear our guest today on Dare to Be is Will Haygood author of The Showdown Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court nomination that changed America we'll be right back Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can always find these episodes on our site at creativeanddaring.com, a business and online community for artists, creators, small businesses, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to get the help they need showcasing their best work, amplifying their social media presence, 
and showing their uniquely creative and daring voices. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creative and Daring. So, well, we're going to get now to our <laughs> to one of my favorite parts of the show. I want to talk about your life as a writer. When did you first fall in love with writing? Well, when I was in high school in the 12th grade in uh, Columbus, Ohio, I hadn't really been focused on writing at all, but I wrote an essay and I, I can't remember what it was about, but the school teacher, she was saying some things to the class out loud and she said, Real's essay is very beautiful, very beautifully written. That was the first thing anybody had out loud said about something that I had written. And I was very I was very struck by what she said. And when I went off to college, although I didn't major in writing or English, I minored in literature and I think I had by then just a love of short stories and essays and books. I just loved reading long form narrative nonfiction. I loved reading good books. When I was like 21, when I was right out of college, I would always try to buy one hardback book a week. Oh, wow. That's a lot of books. Uh, Do you still have all of those books from when you were in college? No, this was following college. Oh, wow. Okay. And when I was out of college, I mean, sometimes I couldn't afford to buy them and I would uh, have to go to the library. But I loved walking around town on the bus. I never had a car in those days, but I loved walking around town with a hardback book under my arm. It just made me feel lightly taller for some reason. <laughs> Aren't you already over six feet tall now? Yes, but I just felt slightly taller. <laughs> I just like said, wow, somebody wrote this book somewhere, maybe last year, maybe 60 years ago. And whoever they are, I'm very happy to be walking around with their book in my hand. Oh, wow. Okay. So is the writing process for your book similar to your reporting background? At the Boston Globe and the Washington Post, you covered poverty, war, apartheid in South Africa, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and even a number of book reviews. Is your process for reporting similar to the process that you have for your for your book writing? Uh, yes. I, I was afraid to write books. I just didn't know how you did it. Books seem, you know, so much longer than a newspaper article. And I remember being at the Boston Globe and I was writing magazine stories and I had not yet written a book, but I had gotten a phone call after my Mississippi River series appeared in the paper from a editor in New York City. And I had spent six days on the Mississippi River for this story in honor of Mark Twain's 150th birthday. And so... I get this call from an editor who asked me if I thought I had enough from the trip to write a whole book. And I was happy to get that phone call, very happy. And uh, an offer was made for me to write the book. And then I got very afraid because I had never written a book. And a friend of mine, this guy named David Nyhan, he's a great writer at the paper, he said to me, he said, Will, just think of one long, one long magazine article and think of 
a hundred of those stacked on top of each other. That's your book. He said, so don't, don't look at a whole book as a whole, whole piece. He said, look at it in small pieces, like uh, this article, and then another article on top of that, and then another magazine article on top of that, and then another magazine article on top of that. And then over time, you'll have 60 magazine articles or a hundred mag or a uh, hundred magazine articles. And that's your book. And that really is something that I that I still hold on to this day. If I'm writing a book and if it sort of makes me afraid, um, I will just think of it as, all right, you have to write one long magazine article uh, next week about this particular aspect of Thurgood Marshall's life. Then you'll be finished with that. Then you got to write another long magazine article about Thurgood Marshall's life in 1948, what he was doing that whole year. And so that sort of brings me down from the tightrope of fear. And so what I'm trying to say is that the newspaper work has helped me be a much better book writer and writing the book helps me bring more skills into the newsroom. Oh, wow. I think for all the aspiring writers out there that are listening to us, they'll be very happy to hear that, that even you had your own fear when you were transitioning from the newspaper world to book writing. And I can even see the process that you talked about in Showdown, like every chapter was sort of like a either like a character profile or a moment in time in Thurgood's life or in his confirmation process. So yeah, yeah. the short, short, long form magazine writing, I can definitely see that in, in your products today. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. do you ever see yourself writing fiction. You've written a number of books, Sammy Davis Jr., even a memoir about your life growing up in Columbus, Ohio, even the piece about the butler, a lot of nonfiction, very well, very well researched pieces. Do you ever see yourself writing like your own made up or imaginated stories? Uh, no, no. Uh, and, and here's why. There are just so many wonderful fiction writers out there. It's not what I do. I feel that I would stumble very badly. I just need facts to work with. Facts sort of uh, heat up my brain. Uh, if I was to sort of switch genres, uh, it might be uh, screenplay writing, uh, script, or maybe even uh, stage plays based on one of my books. Uh, but uh, but no, not fiction. Script writing, yes, I have written a script based on one of my books. It didn't get made, but it was. But the script was bought by a studio. So I, you know, I I feel that. I know how to write scripts, screenplays, and so we'll see if that happens. Okay, so since we're on that topic, what's next for you? What are you currently working on right now? If you can tell us, (laughs) if it's confidential. uh, (laughs) Yes, I am working on a um, long magazine piece. It's it's a sports story. I I, I sort of think that's all I'll be able to say about it right now. it's a sports story that means a lot to me, and it happened in in the 60s, and uh, it's never been written about, so I'm very excited. I've been working on it for the past month, and I'm almost finished. Okay. And now, I, I know you're a basketball fan. Can you give us a hint as to which sport? Is it basketball or football or tennis? It involves... Two sports. Two sports, okay. Uh, basketball and, and baseball. It basketball and baseball, okay. Yep, yep. And yes, it's 
just this great sports story that that hasn't been written about much, and it also involves a a riot in an urban area. It has me very excited. It could be planting the seeds for my next book. That sounds nice. I'm very excited. When should we expect that piece to come out? By the end of next month. Oh, really? Okay, perfect mm-hmm. timing. Yeah. <laughs> I will make sure to follow up with you on that piece so we can tell all our listeners when it's available. Oh, great. Now, um, well, what, in your opinion, and based on your work, what makes a good nonfiction story? Does it need a complex central character, sort of like Thurgood Marshall or Sammy Davis Jr.? Or... Does it need a moment in time, like the civil rights movement, or does it need both? My experience, I look at books and always try to find a different door to go into, a different added door or a different back door or a or side door even. For instance, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, you think on hearing that I'm doing this book about Sugar Ray Robinson, one might think, oh, okay, he was a boxer in the 1940s and 1950s. What else is there to tell? And so my book really became a book about Harlem and music and dance and the fact that Sugar Ray Robinson was torn between entertainment and boxing. Uh, He became, of all things, a tap dancer. And so much of the book takes place outside of the ring. And much of that book is about uh, Harlem beauty, Harlem culture in the 1940s and 1950s. And that, you know, that was very important to me uh, to tell the unexpected story. With the Sammy Davis Jr. book, so many people said to me, Well, his story is just the Rat Pack, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, those guys, and Sammy Davis. No, the first 200 pages of that 450-page book are about three people, three black men, Sammy Davis Mm. Jr.'s father, Sammy Davis Sr., and Will Maston. And and this was a vaudeville trio that traveled the USA in the 1930s and 1940s, and they stayed together. And that was an amazing story to me. Three black people growing, entertaining, staying together, a well-oiled unit. And these men on Sammy Sammy Davis Jr.'s wings, his father and Will Maston, who founded this marvelous trio, they were lost. They were lost and were replaced with the hype of the Rat Pack. And, and that wasn't the story that I wanted uh, to tell. And uh, Mr. Denzel Washington bought the rights to my Sammy Davis Jr. book. And I went to New York and met with him in his home. And he was talking to me and he said, the reason I bought the rights to your book, Will, is not because of the Rat Pack and not because of the 60s, but it was because of the 1930s and 40s when Sammy Davis Jr. was a kid and then a teen and then a very young man and traveling around the country with these two other very gifted black men who the world did not care about. And and that was a movie he wanted to make about these three people. It didn't get made. Somebody else now has the rights to my Sammy Davis Jr. book. But that was a, another window, the same as with my most recent book, with Thurgood Marshall. Um, once I found another door to go through, and that door being the five days of his hearings, and I said, 
bam, that's it. That's mm-hmm. my story right there. Those, I mean, day one, room 2228. If I can take the country into room 2228 for that whole day and then take you back out to a southern town where a lynching occurred. And after the lynching, there was some kind of protest. And during the protest, Thurgood Marshall would ride in on his white horse and save the day. Then I would take you back in the room 2228 and, 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 and show you day two. That's what drives me. The unexpected in the story that you think you know. That's where it happens for me. Okay, that, that, that's great. The way that you have a way of digging deeper um, beyond the surface of the story that everybody probably knows about and giving them the little nuggets that are probably the best parts of a person's life, but that they aren't privy to. Now, with that said, there was one piece in your book that I thought was so interesting. The story about the Port Chicago 50, that group of African-American, and I believe they were in the Navy soldiers who actually started their own protest and stood up for their rights in terms of being put under danger with the assignments that they were given by the Navy, the the, the amount of segregation and discrimination that they faced. And when I was reading that, I was just like, gosh, I wonder whether or not this could be the inspiration for another book by Will, whether or not there's enough material and enough little nuggets in the story. And with that, those 50 soldiers to tell a book on its own. Yes, that is a worthy story for a book. And there have been a couple small books written about it. I would have found some way to tell that story, I'm sure. But I kind of think I may be onto something with this and with this story that I've been working on for the past month. And I found a way to go at these twin stories that happened in the same year. And on the surface, it seems like a fourth story, but you know, but really, there's other little layers to the story that we don't know about that you do? <laughs> bigger, yes, yes. Bigger, bigger layers. And I'm really fascinated with it. You know, I have to go the way my blood beats. And right now it happens to be beating for this story that seemingly has been lost in history. And and I found it. And, uh, and I do know this, the people who I'm going to be writing about are very happy that I found them. And that's very gratifying to me. I remember looking for somebody who worked in the White House and I found this butler and he took me down this basement and it was like being ushered into one of the grand rooms at the Smithsonian Museum. He had all kinds of photographs and letters from the First Lady and uh, scrapbooks from the White House and dining, state dinners that that uh, he put together. And on all four walls, uh, his basement, and this was American history, eight presidents through the eyes of this unknown black man. And I said to him, wait a minute, Mr. Allen, are you telling me you were 35 years at the White House? Are you telling me that no one has ever written a story about your amazing life? And he took a step closer to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, well, if you think I'm worthy, you'll be the first. (laughs) Well, you're like a literary detective. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. that hurt because 
you know, he he had worked at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the most powerful address in the world. In the 1950s, he could go back to his hometown in Virginia and would not be allowed to try on a suit in a store because of the color of his skin. Yet, he was a true patriot. He loved his country more than the laws of his country sometimes loved him because he never left his job. He never missed a day of work. It's amazing. And these are stories, stories in the shadows that, that should be brought out into the light. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Our debut episode of Dare to Be. I've been really inspired by this conversation. Thank you for being one of those writers that's telling the stories that no one else is telling. Definitely looking forward to your future work. And I definitely enjoyed reading Showdown. Can't wait to read to your, uh, your upcoming piece on the basketball and the baseball team that you're writing. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was wonderful. And I wish you much success. It's going to be a wonderful program as you go forward. I know. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to visit creativeanddaring.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creative and Daring. And remember to always, always be fearless and dare to be your most creative and unique self.